So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Besides business or startups, there's, you know, sports, right? Sports has, sports teams have types. In, in basketball, you've got like the point guards and the centers and the forwards, right? And they, and they own their specialty, right? They, they don't, they don't want to like dabble in both. They, they want to get, be the best point guard they can be. Soccer has has midfielders and and forwards and defenders, and the military has specialists, right? So you don't want to dilute those specialties. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Susanna Camps. Susanna, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me, Jess. So um, I'm excited about the conversation today. Why don't we start with, you know, we've also got an interview with with Jonathan Lippman, co-author on The Entrepreneur's Faces, but, but maybe for folks who didn't catch that episode, can you talk about what the new book's about? Yeah, the book is about the archetypes of entrepreneurs and the self-awareness that entrepreneurs need to bring to the their efforts. So we have 10 different archetypes. I have studied archetypes throughout my whole life. So it's something that I really know well and, and can, can get behind. These archetypes are not mutually exclusive, though. So the idea is to kind of be more, uh, bring a holistic approach to entrepreneurship and really tap your strengths, know what your weaknesses are, bring in people to help develop areas of your business that that you aren't naturally inclined to to do yourself. And it's about it's about it's about teamwork and bringing bringing the best team to the effort. It came it kind of came out of a, a desire for empathy, really, to bring a new model to the entrepreneurial community that we that we know and work with, and to kind of give people something else to grab onto besides lean startup and a business model canvas and these things that are much more product centered. We brought a human centric approach. I love it. Well, we're going to talk more about the book today, but let's, let's start with kind of, well, to begin with, where did you grow up? I grew up on the East Coast in New York City, actually. My father was an Episcopalian minister. He was at Trinity Church on Wall Street. So that sort of was informed a lot of my my own empathy really is to sort of congregate with <laughs> literally <laughs> with people from a lot of different backgrounds and really learn more about people than you can learn in in sort of the the bubbles that we all live in now 
my mother was a, a, a big reader. She was uh, super smart, one of the smartest people I know. But they both studied archetypes, as I was just mentioning. My father was a Jungian scholar. He, he loved the Jungian archetypes and, you know, like the jester and the sage. They're diametrically opposed. And so you can't necessarily be in, in the in-between. My mother was a, she was certified to teach the Myers-Briggs test, or not teach it, but give it, to administer it. So I was her guinea pig. <laughs> I was always trying to trick the system and come out as an extrovert, which I was, I was definitely not. And, and that, again, sort of pushed me away from doing a model like that, where you kind of have, have these sort of opposite ends of the spectrum that people have to fit into. Interesting. Well, how do you think that affected? I mean, you've got these impressive things in your career, your time at Wired Magazine and, and other, other kind of frankly cool things you've done. How do you think growing up like that helped you? as you started your career and what you've done? Yeah, well, I wanted to kind of bust out of the East Coast, actually. going into. I wanted to go into publishing, and I didn't really uh, get excited about the East Coast establishment uh, of publishing. I wanted to work for a tech publication. So my first job was at Macworld Magazine, which was an awesome place to start. I really got into Max at that time. I later went to PC World, so I kind of had to lose some of my Mac enthusiasm and, and work for the, <laughs> the opposition. But in between there, I worked at, at Wired Mag. Actually, let me let me just back up one step. After after Mac World, the internet was starting, and I work for an internet yellow pages, actually. This was a print publication that was going to catalog on paper (laughs) all the the websites. And we kind of knew from the start that it wasn't wasn't really going to be possible. But we ended up building a great database that eventually became a search engine. But by that time, I was long gone because Wired, I got an interview at Wired. And I jumped over to there. That was a great place. It was full of incredibly smart and passionate people and really enabled me to get into more of like the the people side of tech to find out like, you know, what people congregate around, what are some of the social movements that are uh, that arise around tech and who are the leaders and the role models. And the, everyone there was actually very entrepreneurially minded in a way. So it was a great sort of template to get started on for me. You know, Wired has, it holds a special place in the heart of tech entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a tech section on CNBC or CNN or whatever. What do you think Wired did differently to create that community and that, you know, to create their cult? Yeah, great question. Well, Wired was really sort of an early evangelist for the the internet and all of that tech had to offer. In the beginning, they were really celebrating the ways that tech could improve our lives. And I think that that kind of storytelling and that kind of sort of like more of a collective evangelism is really important to drive movements forward, to get people excited about what's going on, to move people's hearts and minds around uh, what's really important. And 
actually the evangelist is one of the archetypes in our book. The evangelist knows how to tell the story of the product. They're really good with the creation story and everything. And those are the people that you really need to have out there pitching your product and getting the investors because often it's the, the makers, they don't have that skill or that muscle uh, to really tell their own story well. So Wired was, was great at that. Uh, and I found that uh, a lot of the people who were there at the time really kept up that enthusiasm. It was sort of imprinted on them and went on to create some other new ventures or to join some of the big tech giants and really you know, do really positive things with their careers. And when, when you think about that, it's interesting, this word celebrate that you used, that, mm-hmm. that works for me. You know, I think about, I don't know, I, I, we, we had this great UK CEO on the show a while back, and he generously gave me another hour of his time this week just for some free consulting. And we were talking about what we're trying to do with Greystoke Media. And, you know, really, this is, this is our funnel. This is our version of like Red Bull Media, to, except instead of selling sugar water, we're trying to sell passive income from our investment fund, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was asking him about like, what do you think it would take to break into the business media world? And he said, well, everybody else seems to be really good at selling data. You know, you go to Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, you know, Financial Times, you can get the same story economist, you know, you get the same story four times over. Yeah. That what he found about The Economist was even though the news is slower, it was worth waiting for because he he appreciated the insight that they were bringing to it. It wasn't just this happened, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it does seem like, you know, tech has captured the imagination of the whole world, really. But there's a lot of this happened. Right. And yeah. there, and it seems like Wired is more than that. Would you do you agree? Do you see it differently? I do agree. And I agree with that perspective on The Economist as well. I would say that a lot of what they do is they they provide a kind of a more removed view that's from from the outside, especially when they write about the U.S. They can they can they're they're kind of out they're literally outsiders, but they'll sort of filter it through a more objective viewpoint than you often get through the U.S. media, which can get very caught up in things. For for Wired, I would say that in in the beginning, I'm not I, I, I'm not so sure how objectively they approached tech because they were so optimistic. So they they would they would sort of filter things through the lens of how cool is this, right? <laughs> and it and it was, and I think it's really helpful to have that perspective, especially in the beginning of something when you're trying to create a movement. And it you know it it worked for the community. I think now that some of the big big tech giants have uh, run into some some issues, there's there's a little bit less of that sort of wide-eyed optimism and and carte blanche but but you know that's as it should be and maybe maybe we we just need to make sure that we preserve our objectivity when we're covering things now yeah interesting so i want to talk about some other things you've done but before we leave this when you think about kind of the the whole content marketing movement and this opportunity to not just wait on the press and for you know, businesses to to build in internal capabilities and maybe hire former journalists and things like this and mm-hmm. tell their own stories better. Based on your experience, what what do you see corporations missing? What do you see startups or what do you see businesses missing as they try to do that? 
and how can they how can they really maybe capture some more of the professionalism or some more of the that higher level that that the you know the original media like a wired does well i think that that stories are important that storytelling is important that authentic stories are are really important and positive stories as well I mean, one of the things that I think media tends to go to is sort of the the sensation, right? The sensational stories that often are are not really the 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 most favorable stories. They're sort of like the you know the the horror that gets people really it perks up people's interest, right? Whereas there's there's always a lot more positive angles that you can add to something if you want to really kind of cover something holistically. But storytelling really is key to getting people engaged. That like I think that that people just have to they have to know how to tell their own story well to get to get other people interested in that. And as a journalist, you need to find the people who are going to to tell you the good story that you can capture. Yeah. Well, you've done a number of other exciting things in your career. Can you tell us about a couple more? Sure. Yeah. So I stepped out of tech, out of tech publishing after about 10 years in the, in the industry to go back in and get my master's in education. So that was really great for, for grounding me in some of the sort of theories of learning and also some of the technologies that are important that kind of equalize the, the, the playing field and help to sort of address some of the systemic inequities. So after working for a while in education, I started to, to, to miss tech, unfortunately. So I kind of have had this sort of like, you know, path back and forth between the two. I, about 10 years ago, I started to get really excited about the new startup movement that was happening. And I sort of, I saw this as kind of an, an offshoot of the tech industry, the startups and innovation around that, around, you know, using some of the new technologies to kind of equalize access to the, the startup world were, was something that I was, was enough to draw me back from my desk job in education <laughs> that was, you know, secure but boring and get me back out into um, writing about tech again. And so that's about when I met Jonathan Littman. We found that we, we both had this interest in, in startups and entrepreneurship, and we started to write about it weekly for our website, smartup.life, covering innovators and entrepreneurs and startups. And we were going to events all the time to pitch nights and ecosystem builder events where people from, the, from Europe or from Europe, Europe and American associations would be hosting a lot of entrepreneurs coming over to kind of immerse them in the Silicon Valley mindset. And we wanted to see where those people were coming from, because we knew that Silicon Valley, much as much as it's known to be sort of the, the epicenter of everything tech, is not the only place to be that other European countries kind of off and Asian markets offer for different things for entrepreneurs there. 
So that's when we went off on this sort of world tour to kind of get going on, on the book. And subsequently, now I'll just skip very quickly to now that the book is published, I'm taking a certificate program in instructional design at Harvard Extension. So I, you know, I'm never going to really fully give up either either tech and writing or, or you know, education. I'm all about the lifelong learning. I think it's great. <laughs> so instructional design, what aspect of it drew you in or where, where are you thinking about going with it? Yeah, well, I've, I've always been a fan of experiential learning, John Dewey and learning by doing. I think I heard you mention this in your, in your interview with Jonathan. And it's, some, it's, a, it's a, a sort of a mindset that I've brought to everything that I've taught, that it can't just be sort of a, a lecture style, one to many kind of knowledge transfer students learn from experience and they learn from applying things to the real world. And so when, when Jonathan brought me in to co-teach his course at USF last year, University of San Francisco, this is a course on innovation, creativity, and applied design. I really was instrumental in sort of implementing in the curriculum a lot of more experiential uh, things. So this is sort of a class where we didn't lecture very much. Most most of the, the course was teamwork where people were rolling up their sleeves and actually creating projects to innovate the university or to create a new, new product or a new service and pitch that back to the class to really give them some training in what they were going to have to do if they were going to go into entrepreneurship and um, so, yeah, learning by doing experiential learning is, is quite important to me. In my most recent studies, I've, I've come a little bit more into contact with some of the other theorists who, besides John Dewey, who offer some more, more practical ways that you can engage students and encourage longer term transfer of skills and, and knowledge and understanding. Can you share a couple of examples with us? Sure. I've been thinking about this a lot lately that, you know, whenever you teach, well, first of all, what is teaching and what is learning? A lot of what we do, even, you know, when we're, when we're not teachers is, 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 you know, learning it's we're, te- we're, we're teaching somebody about what we're thinking, right? showing some something to somebody that they don't already know or haven't considered. And that the, the, the way that they will internalize what you're telling them is to kind of apply it through the lens of their own experience, or maybe it's pattern recognition. You know, maybe it's like, oh, I've seen this before, so I see what you're saying, and here's how I might apply what you're telling me. So, I mean, one thing is sort of opening up teaching and learning and understanding to just beyond the educational world. I think that we're all teachers in our own way. But the the other thing that, that I've really been thinking about a lot lately is what, what we call the, the big idea, right? How can you take what you're telling somebody or, te- or teaching someone and really consolidate it into just a few words? What is the most important concept that all of this your course and your your lessons in your course, your activities and your assignments, 
how do they all come back to like the one big idea? So I see yeah. you thinking. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think about it specifically with us, with this, with our real estate investment work, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're kind of pursuing this idea of like, hey, you know, our target audience is kind of, we're going after exciting people who have adventurous lives and who would probably benefit from some boring, reliable income to accompany it, you know, so, so mm. they can afford to have the adventures or do startups or whatever they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. have a little, you know, a little more peace of mind, a little more financial security while, while, they, while they do it. And part of the, like the trust building, I think it'll take there is, is helping them understand, helping them feel confident that our team really can provide this boring, reliable income and why, why they would want to own part of this building versus that kind of a building or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's very based on lessons of Warren Buffett that I unfortunately learned too late. I spent mm -hmm. my twenties making a lot of money and losing it all due to speculating, you know, buying investments that didn't have safety of principle and an adequate return, as Warren would say. But I think about like literally thousands of pages of books about Warren Buffett and courses I've taken and courses I've taught now and stuff. And as you say that, it, it really pushes me to go like, yeah, what is, what is the big idea? And almost like, how can I simplify the whole process by emphasizing the big idea and, and helping people recognize the other one, you know, the stuff around it is like, it's, it's the fingers off the side, it's the branches off the trunk, but what, what really is the trunk and how could that be succinct? So that, right, right. that's what they're you caught me of, thinking about. Right. They're sort of cul-de-sacs, I guess, if you will, like you kind of have, you go down there and you pick up some more tangential knowledge or skill, but you still want to bring it back to, to the the main, the main point of the whole thing. And, you know, I mean, there's different kinds of of, of learning. And so some of it is, is much more kind of theoretical or, or meta, metaphysical or sort of soft. Right. And then other things are more like, you know, math, like you don't, there's not always the, the, I mean, there should be the big idea with math, like, you know, how are you going to apply it in life? And like, you know, some word problems get to the big idea, but you, there's a certain amount of mechanical rote learning that you you always are going to need if you're if you're going to kind of get the the sort of principles under your belt yeah you know i'm i'm interested you talked about this idea of i don't know how you said it but i was imagining you were kind of getting to the point of like learning that lasts like the learning that really gets implanted and sticks with you mm -hmm. do you have anything to say about that Sure. Well, I would I would call that actually more of uh, what the, the, the there's a technical term, which the the enduring understanding, right? But it is exactly that. It's you know how do you teach something to someone that they will they will retain and remember years after your class, which is sort of goes to the idea of things taking a little bit longer to kind of take hold because the student needs to have some experience in this area to apply it to. So if you're sort of just learning something in the, in the abstract, you don't necessarily know what you're going to do with it until later when you've had a chance to kind of in, in, uh, reflect on it. So a lot of learning happens through reflection, I would say, that you, you kind of need that, that space and time, the sort of more elastic concept of, you know, learning over time to, 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 to really make the most of your understanding of that topic. So for, for self-directed learning, people who mm -hmm. want to get better at skill sets themselves, 
what's some practical applications? Any one of us who's working on a skill set for for our company or our startup, how could we how could we implement that in our own learning? Great question. I think taking an immersive approach is important. I mean, one of the things that I've been doing since you're talking about sort of distance learning, right? Or self, self-guided self learning, which is often kind of instructor absent, right? These are, these are the kinds of learning environments where you don't necessarily get you, you, you might not have assignments, right? Because there's no professor to kind of check or grade your work. So it's missing that, that component of, of motivation for one that kind of keeps you on track and keeps you in the class when you're trying to you know, get a good grade or whatever. But it also might be missing that the, 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 the same the same point about not having an assignment sort of leads to, could lead to a lack of reflection. So it's, it's, I've been thinking about this as I build a course around the new book, The Entrepreneur's Faces, to kind of teach people about the archetypes and about how to build the, the team, the optimal team. And I, I really am trying to apply a lot of the learning theory to building up this course and, and helping to instill some reflection and get, get students kind of rolling up their sleeves and doing things and possibly even with each other. But, you know, if the professor doesn't find a way to, to build in those avenues for engagement and interaction and reflection for you, you're going to have to supplement those courses that you take and that knowledge with something that is more applied, you know, maybe find a a mentor, find an avenue for actually applying something because otherwise it won't, it'll just be too abstract. And I don't think it's going to really be absorbed as well. Yeah. It makes me think about giving ourselves our own assignments of, you know, pausing the audiobook, pulling out the notes app on my phone and, you know, you know, talking out what that application could be in our business and maybe like sitting in the car with Mm -hmm. no radio on, no audiobook on and just letting it Mm -hmm. marinate, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of maybe some self-imposed silence and some space for reflection. Yeah. Well, I will say that one of the things that I've learned in, since the pandemic started is the value of digital collaboration tools and so if you're working with a team of people, there, there are great ways to kind of spur and, and enhance reflection by pulling up, say, a digital whiteboard in the middle of your meeting and getting everybody to kind of create something together, a shared document that is, you know, not just, you could do it in Google Docs, of course, too, or, you know, some other online kind of recording tool. But one of the things about these digital whiteboards is that they really tap that kind of more creative energy. You know, you can add, you can add photos and stickies and colors and notes and, you know, have a timer and voting and all these kinds of things that, that kind of keep people engaged and in the moment and, you know, having, building something, co-collaborating, co-creating something of lasting value. That's interesting. You know, I have my own guess, but in your mind, what's the value specifically for an entrepreneur in the self-awareness of recognizing the archetypes and what, you know, what their mix probably is and, and what their co-founders or staff members mix is? Yeah. So there, there's, there's real value in self-awareness in kind of taking a strength-based approach and not, not a deficit approach, knowing what you're good at and 
and kind of what you're lacking so that you can add somebody into the team to kind of address that that lack. And so, yeah, that's what we're hoping with the book. And we kind of provide some great examples that people can get behind that are pretty accessible. We cut, we, we chose everyday entrepreneurs and granted entrepreneurs who knew how to tell their story well. So they told it to us so we could amplify it and then tell it even better to, to everyone else. But, but yeah, so then through these examples, we, we talk about some of the complementary skills that come to the effort. Like you can be, if you, if you, you can be a great, a great maker and like make the greatest product in the world, but nobody's ever going to find out about it if you can't get it to market. And that's why you need the evangelist to help you tell the story. And likewise, the conductor who's great at building a platform, a network of people in his community or her community, and kind of getting them all to to work together in the best ways. That person needs might need, for example, the outsider to give bring a perspective that is is not so myopic and not so focused on that network. The guardian who is a mission mission driven entrepreneur who has you know something something that they really want to bring to the world to help improve people's lives may need a maker to help prototype with some of the products that they're that they're trying to get off the ground and so really it's about it's about the value of diversity on on teams and not hiring just people who or attracting partners right right who just look like you and act like you and think all the same things that you think yeah well maybe i'll ask you a similar question to jonathan thinking specifically about the visionary archetype Mm -hmm. you know i feel like we get we get criticized a lot because we have our share of weaknesses when you think about getting better at being a visionary, not, not like, like from that strength spring, like your strengths based mm-hmm. approach of like, mm-hmm. rather than trying to fix the things, you know, I recruit either co-founders or staff for those things I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. And I want to double down on being a better visionary or being more visionary. Mm-hmm. Any suggestions on what that could look like? Well, I think that learning from examples can help to make you feel your strengths even even more strongly. I mean, I mean, certainly there is value in, in studying some of the, the leaders, the, some of the visionary leaders. Of course, Steve Jobs comes to mind, and I think he was mentioned also by Jonathan, and you guys maybe talked about him a bit. But the more accessible model that we have in our book of the, the visionary who kind of knew what what trends were going to be coming along even before they they hit so that he could kind of create something and create some buzz around it that would change the change things for the better and and give his his company more leeway but again what what he did uh was add some skills of the evangelist to his efforts so he you know you really need to be able to to craft a, a story of around what you're building in order to get people interested in it and and then and, and, and sort of you know pave pave the way for whatever you're going to to realize you know what that what that vision is so for for visionaries specifically startup entrepreneurs who are visionaries any any recommendations about that about crafting a better story yeah well 
I, th I think the starting with the the origin story can be very important. Is talking about the 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 reasons that you're you're going in this new direction? I think that we were get, we were talking about journalism before. I mean, one of the ways that that journalists tell stories about emerging technologies is to bring in a lot of, of data and numbers and they help to kind of quantify it for people so that they can put it through a lens of something, you know, especially like, you know, there's an analogy used or a comparison so that people can sort of understand the, what it is that you're talking about if, if it doesn't already exist. Looking back again, Wired magazine, I mean, Wired was, of course, that Louis Rosetto and Jane Metcalf, the, the co-founders, were some of the original visionaries. They, they envisioned this magazine that was so different from any other magazine and really, like, shouted the, this new kind of, like, techno design that hadn't really been seen before. I don't know if you recall some of the earliest versions of wire but it was like the print was was written across both pages and they sort of broke all the molds for like how you would how you would lay out a magazine but i think actually visionary they would they would cover a lot of visionaries but they but then they would add in the the evangelist skill and help those people to kind of amplify their stories and they would hold the mic microphone for them to kind of get the get the story out to the the world. You know, the visionaries don't always have the skills to kind of implement to, you know, to get to market. You know, in some ways, I feel like I get to do a little bit of that with this show where, you know, I, I have all these like fancy sounding, you know, people, billionaires and four-star generals and New York Times bestselling authors and Navy SEALs, whatever, right? And, and in many ways, like, even though many of them are very well known in their circle, there's still an opportunity to widen that circle, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I get this like incredible learning. I feel like I get like free consulting sessions, right? But then hopefully help to kind of hope to help other people recognize what they've accomplished and maybe amplify what, what they're working on. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way. And this is, uh, this is, it taps another mindset that we cover in the book. It's the, the Guardian, I mentioned before, is somebody who really sets out to kind of, to help people. And if you've got a platform for, for, for storytelling or publicity or what have you, one of your models, and, and you do, <laughs> one of your missions then is to kind of bring, give access to people who wouldn't normally be able to amplify their, their voice. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great magnanimous perspective that, that you're bringing. So thank you for that. And thank you for giving well, me the opportunity to speak. I don't know that it's mag that magnanimous. I have so much fun and I'm constantly thinking like, do you know what, how much that hour would have cost me if I had to pay them to talk to them? <laughs> like this is, I feel like it's like a big arbitrage for me, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm interested, you know, I, I'm interested in any of your thoughts about, you look at Wired stood out. You know, part of the reason their success was they didn't blend in, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at a show like this and, you know, we love to think we're special, but in many other ways, like there's a million interview shows, there's a million podcasts. In many ways, we're very similar, right? To, to stuff that already exists. Do you have any thoughts about ways we can differentiate or, or just any thoughts in general? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's that, that specialization is is key and it's it's interesting for me to even say this now as a liberal arts major who's kind of 
not necessarily specialized in my career. I've kind of taken like, I've, I'm interested in this and I learn a bit and then I'm interested in this and I go, I mean, I, I sort of, you know, attack a bit though. I believe also I'm heading toward the big idea, right? I would hope, but I think that the power in specialization as well in, in celebrating your strengths and, and coming to, to grips with your weaknesses, building supportive team. And if you, and if you look at like other industries that besides business or startups, there's, you know, sports, right? Sports has, sports teams have types. In, in basketball, you've got like the point guards and the centers and the forwards, right? And they and they own their specialty, right? They, they don't they don't want to like dabble in both. They they want to get be the best point guard they can be. Soccer has has midfielders and and forwards and defenders, and the military has specialists, right? So you don't want to dilute those specialties when they're really strong. And so, you know, why, why shouldn't we apply that same sort of diversity and precision to, to the startups and the ventures that we build? Yeah, I love it. Well, what's something I didn't ask? Well, you didn't ask me what my type was. Okay, <laughs> let's start there. I am the type that we call the maker. I, I like to build things. I like to prototype. And one of the things that I've built is the website, the, the little quiz on the website where you can find out which type you are. And can we uh, give everybody that URL again? Sure. It's theentrepreneursfaces.com. I built our ebook in such a way that is different from the print version of the book. So in the print version of the book, you, you read each chapter, which is a stage in the entrepreneurial journey from the, the awakening where you have the initial idea to the scale, which is the, the ultimate, right? When you scale up your, your venture and we tell the story of 10 different types there. And so you see how each character goes through the awakening in the different way and how each character goes through the shift in their own unique ways. But in the ebook, it's different. I wanted to have a more readed narrative that was uh, the user could could choose if they wanted to, so they could they could read each character all the way through, right? So they can pick the character that resonates with them, and read about their their entire journey, each stage in the journey, and then go back to the beginning. So yeah, so as a as a maker, there are constantly things that I'm tweaking and and testing and building. And again, I'm going to be, or I'm about halfway through building a course on the entrepreneur spaces to kind of help people kind of immerse themselves more and and really learn it in a in a digitally optimal environment. Interesting. You know, one other thought that occurs to me is, you know, just the environment and the people you're around and the things that you get to see. You know, I got to take one class at Stanford that was amazing. I called my wife and said, like, do I have to come home? Can't I just stay? You know, but <laughs> did you take the launch pad class? Is that did Jonathan tell me that? We attended and sort of sat in on it. I didn't go through it as okay. a, uh, a founder. I had the sense that you you might, I, I'm not exactly sure how these kids did it with other courses at the same time, because they really threw themselves wholeheartedly into the effort of building these often very successful enterprises. But but no, I was, as uh, I was writing the book at the time, I didn't see that... <laughs> 
I had the time sure. to really go to go to it as a student. But uh, but sitting in on it, what what were some of the takeaways that maybe you didn't expect? Oh, you know the 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 value of the the network was huge. When you know Stanford is kind of a, a rarefied spot where there's a lot of alumni, a lot of access to the those alumni networks and and the the resources that they're sort of putting back into the system. So I was I was really amazed to go to see in this one class where they invited in a whole bunch of VCs who were all Stanford alums to weigh in on on what on the perceived uh, value of these uh, students potential businesses like they would actually uh, just try they were trying to decide which ones they might invest in if they were real ventures at this time and so they they gave really insightful and helpful feedback to the kids who about their their pitches and just, I say kids they're 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 young adults uh, some are grad students but they, yeah, I think that the the value of the network, whether you're at Stanford or anywhere else, is super important. It's the it's the concept that we talk about in the book called uh, place, because it can be a, both a physical place, and in that case at Stanford, it is was more a physical place. Now I think it's somewhat more virtual, or it can just be you know the people that you're learning from in who are you know, like minded and helpful, who are going to kind of help you get your venture off the ground and successful. That's interesting. I, I guess my next question is with all this exposure, both in Silicon Valley, at Stanford, in that environment, at Wired, and then going and doing what you called your world tour, you know, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs all over. I'm interested in, in any predictions you have of what the next phases of entrepreneurship will look like or what you see in the next handful of years that maybe not everyone else sees. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, for one thing, it's important to look at trends in in entrepreneurship kind of globally, but also to understand that some of that 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 countries all kind of go have different things to offer the entrepreneurial community. Today that the countries that are are more that are more innovative are actually investing in entrepreneurship for young people. They start at high school levels or sometimes even even younger to kind of change their the mindset and get them off on a professional course that is that is really more foundational to move them away from more static careers and to kind of help build the economy in in that way and so hopefully we'll see some of the same countries that have been supporting the you know entrepreneurship in a more holistic manner like France and, and Portugal to kind of they're, they're really fostering big entrepreneurship communities hopefully we'll see some of that spill over into the US because the US is it's a lot more private privatized and commercialized here the government doesn't get so much behind it but you know especially with the with with the pandemic I think that there've been you know there's it's very been fer- very fertile ground for finding the kinds of pain points that that entrepreneurs need to start new businesses and so if we're really going to kind of innovate our way forward through the this this setback of the pandemic I think some government supports are are sort of incumbent in that experience would be great I do think you know I grew up in western Canada and I think it's pretty similar there in in some ways 
And I do think about like, you know, I've got four kids and there's this school system that's very intentional on, you know, how to train people, how to sit still and trade their dollars for hours. And, you know, there's like, if there's two big categories for, you know, feeding a family, <laughs> feeding yourself, there's the kind where you trade your hours for dollars and the kind where you don't. And our, our system is kind of only covers half that spectrum, you know? And I don't know, I, I felt kind of, I don't know. I look back and felt like, you know, those first 12 years were a waste in so many ways and very under-optimized for my future, mm -hmm. you know, and there's not a lot of flexibility. There's not a lot of, mm -hmm. not a lot of flexibility, not a lot of options other than this kind of conveyor belt to deliver you to yeah. nine to five jobdom, you know? Well, right. I mean, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, how like, yes, I mean, it could be, I think it, the, a lot of what we know of the school system was developed in the industrial age. So it's sort of more tailorism and like trying to create employees who are going to get out there and like assemble things. Now we're well past that. We're in the we're sort of beyond the information age is the conceptual age, I believe Daniel Pink calls it. But you know what what we should be doing is is training people more intellectually to kind of take take things you know wherever they are as as our world develops moving forward. And and to come back to one of the things that that Steve Blank said uh, when you interviewed him recently was that entrepreneurs live to work, whereas other people may work to live. Like they're just, you know, get working for the man and getting the paycheck, right? But if you're building your own conceptual enterprise, right, you, it's, you have a lot more options and, and you can probably going to have a, a happier, more fulfilling life. Yeah. Problem solving and creativity and invention and collaboration, you know, Almost like, I don't know, I guess I wish that, I wish that there was more options for my kids to be prepared to solve any problem instead of that math problem or that, you know, where, you know, where is the location of this country or whatever, like, it's great general knowledge, but like, if it's all available on Google, couldn't those hours of rote memorization be used on creativity skills and solving any other, you know, like having the the raw tools to attack any problem. And so I'm finding like, I have to do that at home because they're not, they're not doing that at school. Right. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, there's, there's a, there is a whole concept and of, and you might be interested in this. Have you heard of the, the neuroscientist, David Eagleman? He talks mm. about just in, in case learning, which is what we grew up with, or I grew up with anyway, where there were still encyclopedias versus just-in-time learning, where if you have everything at your fingertips, right, at the internet, you can just find out what you need to know when you need to know it. You don't have to be educated in quite the same way. You, you need to, you, you can take a more holistic approach, right? Leave yeah, I, room for some of that serendipity. Yeah, I think about that. You know, I'm a, I'm a college dropout. I get to write all my applications of some college, right? <laughs> But, you know, I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. I've read, you know, of the non-fiction non books, you know, hundreds of non-fiction books and taking classes at Harvard and Stanford and other courses and 
seek out mentors for different things, but I intentionally choose something that I think will be valuable right then or that matters right Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And I dive super deep into it. And I, you know, use kind of the tools from the deliberate practice methodologies for meaningful repetitions over time to cement things into long-term memory and myelinate neural connections. And, Mm. and, you know, I get rapid skill acquisition. And so in many ways, I do feel like, I, I, I guess I wish that that was more prevalent of, Helping, helping people learn how to learn so that in the future, when the new problem that hasn't been invented yet shows up, mm-hmm. that they have that skill set for learning how to learn, you know, achieve the mastery that it'll take to, to conquer that in the future. So I guess you got to take more personal responsibility and not wait on the government at this point. Well, I think we need more evangelists if we're going to, if we're going to get a movement around this, right? I mean, there are some people like, you know, Harari, right? And Yuval Noah, Noah Harari, who talks about how we're all, how we should be educated for the age of, of AI. And this guy that I'm reading, Rutger Bregman, have you read his book? It's called Humankind. It's all about the humans being built or, or, or being born to kind of be kind and, and helpful, contrary to what a lot of the evidence tells us uh, some of the evidence turns out to be to be wrong but you know i think that there are other ways of of educating kids that give them a lot more agency and and ownership of of their futures and 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 so we need some uh, strong voices and strong leadership to help us understand some of those other uh, paths that we can take yeah that's great well thanks for doing this it was fun appreciate you coming and tell us about your experience in the new book Thanks, Jess. It was great. It was great to be here. Bye, everyone.